Welcome friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to local news and social artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton. And each week we get to talk to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out. And we have a returning guest today, Nikita Coombs, or some know her as Nikita Nicola, uh, is on the line. Actually, we're Zooming today. So hi, Nikita. Hi, thanks for having me again. Yes, you've, uh, you're still working on your um, dissertation, aren't you, at Mizzou? Yes, so um, I've done my studying and collected my data. So right now it's doing analysis and writing up the results. And is the analysis like something that, uh, oh, what kind of analysis are you talking about? Um, so it's mostly quantitative. So running different stats programs to see, um, you know, group comparisons, whether it's intergroup or intergroup, um, see differences, similarities, things like that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's been a long time since I did my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I had a, a lot of help from a professor there at Mizzou that, uh, help me with my statistics and analysis and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, so I don't remember too much of that part. Yeah, that's that's definitely a tricky, tricky part <laughs> of me. It's one yeah. of the harder parts for me, actually. But I do have a lot of help and support. So hopefully it goes well. Your dissertation subject is on race. Is that correct? Um, pretty much. So it's the over the overarching umbrella is social justice in education. Um, and it is motivated in part by um, severing the school to prison pipeline. Um, so I noticed because I worked in the schools with the mental health coalition. Um, and, you know, I noticed a lot of different factors that um, were negatively impacting kids, which will you know, negatively impact them down the road. So things like the quality of relationships that they have with their teachers, um, things like school discipline, the type of discipline, you know, things like um, disparities based on race, disparities based on, um, you know, their social economic status, um, things like that. And I also noticed that a lot of teachers, they are not prepared by no fault of their own, um, to work in diverse classrooms. Um, you know, their programs are not preparing them for that. So I use a preventative approach where I did my study with students who are studying to be teachers. So they're not even in the classrooms as yet. Um, they're like within most of, a lot of them are like within their third or fourth year. So I figured if um, we can get to them before they get in the classroom, they'd be more prepared. Um, to deal with these students um, and lower the risk of negative impacts, right? Yeah. So my so my my dissertation developed a program. It's called Right on Race, and basically, um, it teaches a lot of different skills that not just teachers but anyone can use um, to build cultural competence. And as we know, that's not 
there's no end goal with cultural competence. It's forever learning. Um, or, you know, the other name, cultural humility. Um, so that prepares them for when they're in the classroom. It's not like, okay, what do I do now? It's, it's things that make them more self-aware, reflective, um, just being socially conscious, really. And, you know, yeah. An excellent approach. I, I just love that, that you're working with uh, teacher ed um, students that are preparing. What a smart, mm -hmm. what a smart move. Yeah, and so the eventually, um, the goal is to have it um, implemented not just with teacher ed, but you know across institutions. Because as you know, um, you know undergrad students feel you know they have similar issues when, especially if they're not at HBCUs, and even if they are, because um, you know cultural competence and cultural humility is not just something that you know majority or white teachers struggle with. Um, black teachers have the same issues. Just because you're black doesn't mean you understand how to communicate effectively with diverse populations, right? Right. So the goal is to have it um, at at every level if possible. Um, even in grad school, there's a lot of um, black teachers, black professors, black students who feel ostracized or um, they don't have a sense of belonging because the environment was not um, welcoming or you know prepared for them. So it, it can be applicable across settings, across age groups, um, across the world, really. Mm -hmm. So, right. Um, as, you said, as you said, uh, cultural competence is not something that has an end to it. Uh, I'm 75 and uh, still uh, so much more to learn. Uh, right. And things, you know, things and times change. So you know, one of the emphasis of my project is understanding that something that you might know to be true now might not always be true. And it's okay to change your stance the more you learn. You're not, you're not stuck on one stance because you, you know, even if you publicly said, like, I think this, you know, when you know better, you do better. So that's like one of the umbrellas of that project as well. Excellent. Uh, did you have trouble uh, at all with response? Uh, I mean, how, how did, were these people required or did they, did they volunteer? Nope. So it was, it was not required. It was definitely on a voluntary basis. And I also provide incentives because, you know, we're human and we're motivated by different things. Mm -hmm. So we're much more likely to participate if we know we're getting, um, you know, incentivized for a time and their effort. Um, they also didn't know what group they were in, right? So they don't know if they, if the intervention was in their class or not. Um, they, yeah, so they, um, it was blind. I was blind to the study and so were they. Um, and then um, I think, I think based on how the questions were recorded and um, the class that it was implemented in was cultural diversity. Um, it was implemented in just some of the sections. So the topics that we're going to talk about is very similar. Um, so it, it didn't feel like out of place. It meshed really well. Can I assume that the subjects themselves were a diverse population? Um, as diverse as the College of Education is. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, because you have to kind of work with what's there. 
So I, I think it will be, it, it'll probably be, ma- not probably, it will be majority white students. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there will be a diverse, um, in terms of their responses. Yes. Um, uh-huh. Because okay. I also taught that class and both times I had majority white students, but it was two completely different groups. Mm-hmm. And then one time I had um, almost 90% female and then the other time i had um you know a good amount of male and that changed the dynamic so there's just so much going on mm-hmm. that changes it yeah i remember uh even when we met at lincoln university uh at that time and and for a long time um, the teacher ed program was predominantly uh, white students even at an hbcu Exactly. And that, and we see that that's a trend, um, you know, nationwide, I think. And, you know, that brings up the issue of representation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it's easier to talk to someone that looks like you, even if they're not. Um, sometimes it doesn't even matter what you think about their qualification. It's just more of a comfortable um, way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And as I recall, the faculty in that department was uh, heavily weighted uh, in the uh, white side. <laughs> yes, and that continues to be true as well. Um, and again, we see that at a lot of places. And it's not, I really want to point out that it's not that you know Black people are not smart or they don't want to be teachers or anything like that. It's, one is the recruiting process and the opportunities available. You know, when you think of systematic oppression, it goes so far back to education and being, a, being able to afford grad school and then it, it just kind of trickles down. And then it's not even about just getting them in the door, it's making them feel at home where they stay. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do. I don't know how much uh, of the history you have had in classes or conversations but you mean the real if it's if you're talking about like the real history then probably zero but if it's the whitewashed watered down one then maybe a little bit well this is probably a mixture that i'm going to mention (laughs) prior to uh, 1954 when the supreme court had the desegregation of school rule that most of the black schools had black teachers. Mm-hmm. And when integration took place, my understanding is that many of those black teachers lost their jobs. Right. Um, or if they or if they stayed at the school, it's the schools that are underfunded, no resources, um, you know, and teaching is stressful as is. So imagine all those factors working against you. Yeah, so there was the... <laughs> moral side of that decision that black and white schools should be equal, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but the practical uh, application ends up that today I've been hearing that uh, our schools are as segregated now, if not uh, more than they were in in, uh, 1965. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, I agree with that. And that's one of the topics we talked about in my class as well. And it's just that now it's, you know, it's covered or hidden by these zoning laws and zoning rules. And this, you know what I mean? Like, it's not as explicit, but the way it is set up, the same thing happens. You know, 
the rich yeah. kids go to the school that is resource heavy um the ones that don't really need it and, and usually those that are wealthy or white so it, it, it's the same system just under a different name yes uh how curious how that happens uh, so we well i mean i mean the rules and the laws are usually written um you know by white men for white men and their kids so that's kind of how that happens yes uh, i think my tongue was in my cheek when i said curious <laughs> <laughs> that's okay that's okay yes uh, so since we last talked uh, we've had uh, covid-19 arrive mm -hmm. we've had a, a another long series of uh, black men and women being murdered mm -hmm. uh, and there seems to be a shift in consciousness at least uh, represented by the actions of people today uh, are you noticing in your own uh, environment a shift in conversations or how people are interacting um yes uh, uh, i'd say definitely but um i try not to get too hopeful because um you know talking is one thing um actions is probably what i want to see more but at the same time there in terms of people who are advocating and speaking out um it's not just it's not just black people now um there's people who've been quiet for a long time that are um it's just now hitting them um on one side it's disappointing that it, it's taking this long and it's taking someone you know losing their life uh you know kids losing their father um parents losing their kids for this to happen but at the same time it's like um it, it kind of had this jolt globally um, where more people are now seeing what we've been saying this whole time. Right. Um, it's, it's draining when you're from that demographic because it's, it's like I've been telling you this since the beginning of time mm -hmm. and, and you're just now seeing it. But imagine living, living this day in, day out. Yes, which is impossible for us white folk to do. It's just, you know, there's no... Uh we can have empathy to a degree, but we don't live it. And I can't, I truly, I truly cannot imagine the daily stress and, uh, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It, it just, it brings back, um, it brings me to like the concept of racial trauma that people don't really understand. Mm -hmm. Um, especially for some of us that, um, you know, we do that kind of work. It's, it's, it's very important to take breaks because it will drive you into the ground because you live in it, you're researching it. Um, you're putting in practices in place, but, and then everything else in your life is going on at the same time. Right. Right. Uh, you actually just relocated, uh, today. <laughs> is that well, I'm back. I'm I, well, I moved my stuff, yes. So, I so at the, when in your very last year of your doctoral program, well, for mine specifically, we have to do a one year internship 
and I will be doing mine in Wisconsin, um, working with juvenile justice. Um, they have a detention center there that houses a school for boys and girls. And um, they also have a rotation where you can develop programs. Um, so my goal is to work on reducing recidivism, which means reducing the amount of kids that come right back. And as of right now, they mostly, you know, they stay in this controlled, um, high, you know, high monitoring and rules environment. And when their time is up, we throw them into the world with the sharks. And then we expect that they'll survive and follow the rules and be, you know, upstanding members of society. It doesn't work like that. You can't take someone from that environment and just have them out in the world um, without, you know, any kind of mentorship or skill building or even just like a slowly tapering them and, and um, you know, getting their feet wet. So yeah. um, my goal is to work on that so that they stay away from those centers because, you know, it also goes back to my dissertation with the school to prison pipeline. Right. A lot of these kids are from low income backgrounds, um, minoritized groups. Um, almost all of them have been through some kind of a trauma and I feel like we're punishing them for their circumstances that they didn't have any control over it. instead of teaching them the skills that they need, you know, to heal and survive. And is there a, um, is there a book that you uh, go to, to, um, work through the skills that they need and the uh, checklist and the, uh... um, so I guess some people work like that, but I think there, um, there are too many variables at play. So I, like once I meet, you know, who I'm working with, then I, then I'll know where to go from there. So I, I don't really plan ahead and say like, cause I don't believe in that one size fit fits all. So right. it depends on, so I probably, so my first thing is just building relationships and rapport and then going from there. So I don't really have like a manual that I'm going to use because um, that's not, that's not really my style. <laughs> and you haven't written the book on it yet. <laughs> not yet, but I'm glad you brought that up because I am actually in the process of publishing two books. Um, one of them was more like a journal. And so I, I am motivated a lot by, and this might sound corny, but by, co by quotes that I think relate to my life. So for example, if I'm having a really rough day, um, I'll read certain quotes and I get motivated by that. So I, I made a journal that has some of my favorite ones in it for people who use writing as like healing or writing as, you know, a way of expression um, in hopes that they might be inspired by that as well. And then the other one is um, I realize a lot of our kids are lacking social emotional skills. Um, things like empathy. Things like um, how to interact with others, things like identifying your feelings and expressing them appropriately. So I'm starting a series of books that um, teaches kids as young as young as they are, as young as they are, how to, um, you know, like teaching them social emotional skills, starting from kindergarten all the way up. So it will be a series. So 
I'm I'm pretty done. I'm done with the manuscript for the first one, so I'm really excited about it. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a hint on how you increase a young person's empathy? Um. So, for example, when you start with little kiddos, um. One of them is just normalizing feelings and emotions, especially for boys and especially for um, black children. Um, a lot of times they, they have to kind of skip their childhood because we treat them like adults. Um, we treat them, and a lot of them grew up in survival mode, right? Mm -hmm. So it's go, 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 fight, fight, fight. Right. So for example, with little kiddos, it's like taking time out to explain to them like, you know, it's okay to feel this way, but then also having coping skills that can help them feel better. So, for example, um, my first book has, it's using the letters of the alphabet to explain various emotions and also how can you use that to either benefit yourself or others? Um, what are some ways to help you feel better when you're feeling this emotion? Or how, how can you help your, your little friend next door feel better when they're feeling it? So it's slowly having them understand their emotions and then the emotions of others. And then how can you help yourself and help other people? Um, it's identifying trusted adults that you can go to and speak to. Um, and coping skills can be as simple as asking for a break, you know, because it's a lot of, just like how we are going through a pandemic, so are they. And I think we forget that, you know, they don't see their little friends. They don't have lunch at school. They don't get to, go through their routine um, or lives are, you know, on break and so are theirs. Um, so it's little things like that. You just uh, triggered a thought that your, I will say, your people have been going through a pandemic for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some of us are going through a single pandemic. Some of us are going through multiple. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Including yeah. our children, including, you know, the little ones. Um, they're, they're experiencing a lot. It trickles down. Mm -hmm. They experience a lot, a lot of the same things. Mm -hmm. In my uh, neck of the woods here in Jeff City, I was not aware that there was a Confederate monument in my neighborhood wow. until, until a black friend brought it to my attention a little over a month ago. Right. And uh, since then, I have uh, <laughs> been standing in front of it for 30 minutes every day uh, with a sign that says, uh, this Confederate monument will be removed. And have you, have you made any progress, do you think? Well, uh, <laughs> amazingly, there, um, it is now on the, and not just because of me, but I'm, I, I sort of got into the, the, um, the work late. Uh, it had been mm -hmm. going on for a month or two. And so it possibly what I'm doing helped to increase awareness. But uh, last night there was an NAACP Zoom meeting and it was brought up. There have been uh, letters to the editor, um, dialogue with the uh, different commissions in town that have bearing on it. And uh, I just learned today that uh, 
the KRCG TV or somebody's TV has been trying to find people to interview about it. Um, so <laughs> I, I think it's uh, bubbling up in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know what's, uh, it's very different than the one on Mizzou's campus where students have been suggesting that uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, statue there be removed. Right. Uh, this one in uh, Jeff City was actually uh, given to the city by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And it is uh, put there to uh, honor uh, a Confederate general, uh, General uh, Sterling Price, and that's the purpose of it. it it's not there to honor <laughs> Jeff City, which uh, turned General Price uh, away. It's not uh, honoring the Union. It's uh, you know, it's there. Right. To, I call it a Trojan horse. It's there to. Uh, uh, keep reminding people to think well of these uh, racist figures. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. So I, I do believe it's going to be removed. It's uh, just going to be a matter of, uh, of time and uh, I guess some wisdom on the part of uh, those of us that are working to uh, have it removed. Right. Well, that's a start. I mean, a, a start a bit too late, but a start nonetheless. You yes. Know, they say better late than never. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with um, a man named Jeffrey Robinson, who uh, I just was uh, turned uh, on to his lecture, you might say, on YouTube called The Truth of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. uh, he actually delivered this lecture in 2017, but uh, I, just, I just saw it this week. <laughs> Again, you know, we, we get to it when it gets to us. And, right. And so our uh, cultural uh, competence uh, continues to grow. And I mean, as it should, because you should always, you know, be seeking new information and keep learning. Yeah. So, uh, Jeffrey Robinson is a, a um, black lawyer, mm -hmm. and uh, he uses a PowerPoint presentation, and it is showing that these um, thousand plus. Uh, monuments and markers and uh, memorials um, are there with the intent purpose to continue the um, culture of white supremacy um, it's it's pretty obvious even in the language that the daughters of the, the united daughters of the confederacy have in their own website Right. I also think um, it's it's like uh, it's there to to almost like rewrite history and glorify certain behaviors as 
you know, being patriotic or being strong when it's just plain racist. Right. And probably illegal. Yeah, I, I have a quote uh, from their website. It says that uh, the memorials, monuments, and markers are for honoring the memory of the Confederate ancestors, protecting, preserving, and marking places made historic by Confederate valor. Right. So uh, you're exactly right. It's it's uh, sort of a rewriting of history, and uh, they also uh, published uh, books and they got textbook companies to make uh, a interesting shift in the way the Civil War gets taught. Uh, yep, romanticizing it and uh, uh, just. You know, so so then people uh, get taught, and what are they to do? Well, just, I learned this in school. Um, so uh, Jeffrey Robinson says that uh, the Confederacy lost the war, but they won the peace by all of these different uh, steps and and the different uh, movements that were made. You know, whether you're talking about the uh, the KKK and, and the um, Southern uh, Democrats that were trying to overthrow and succeeded in overthrowing the uh, Reconstruction period. Right. Uh, the lynchings that went on. Did you know that there were 60 lynchings in Missouri between 1877 and 19? Will you believe this? 50. 1950. I was six years old in 1950. I mean, I would believe it because I think we are still having those going on um, and they're just being marketed as self harm and suicide. Yeah. They, maybe not in Missouri, but, um, well, you know, I, I think of myself as a scientist um, and I look a lot at correlation. And, you know, you can't tell me all of these um, people just decided, um, you know, they want to hurt themselves, but they want to do it in a tree, hanging from a tree, like, especially in the social climate, like, come on. Mm -hmm. So I do believe that that happened because it's still happening. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, various other things that happen uh, might as well be called a lynching uh but right. we call it another name yeah yeah well you know there's there's uh it, it's interesting that so many people have ancestors that live in in missouri particularly in columbia jeff city uh along the missouri river whose ancestors came from virginia and kentucky and tennessee so mm -hmm. They, they had that cultural background that they then passed along uh, in their family uh, tree, although it didn't always stick, but, you know, it was available. And uh, for some of us, it's a shock to know that that, that was part of our ancestry and we didn't have a clue. Right. 
but then it's like what once you know you know what do you do with that information right do you just do you just acknowledge it and then you're like okay that's not my problem you move on with your life or do you try to make some corrections mm-hmm. for what those before you did yeah I, i'm finding that i need personally to have something <laughs> as concrete as a monument to stand in front of it, it you know when when systemic racism is so pervasive everywhere it it's hard to grab a hold of but when you have a monument you can stand in front of with a sign well you know all right, right. i can do that uh, I'm glad you bring that point up because I think a lot of people are thinking of themselves like, you know, I'm just one person. This is so big. I don't think I can make a difference. I don't know what I can do, but you know, it's imagine it's like one person, you know, one, you're just one person, but then somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. And before you know, it's a movement that makes a change. Right. Yep. Uh, And and since we're all individuals, we all come into the movement with slightly different viewpoints. Yeah, with different roles. Mm-hmm. Um, as I know, I had friends who felt guilty that, you know, I wasn't out protesting, I wasn't doing this. And then, you know, I tried to re- reiterate that um, that's not, there's, there's not one way to show that you care or to make a change. There's multiple avenues and we're, we can all do our different parts and it's not that one is more important than the other. Um, we love those who are protesting and getting the word out, but then there's people doing research and implementing practices to change racist systems in the schools to help our kids. There's people doing other stuff. And it's not one is not important than the other. It's just we have different, we have different roles towards the same goal. Mm-hmm. Right. Very well said. I appreciate that. And uh, there's there's plenty of criticism from uh, people other than your friends that are in the movement. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I guess uh, I I've been guilty of, of doing some criticism myself, although I, it was trying to be constructive. But you know we all are sensitive to criticism, and and uh, I. Uh, I'm having to learn as I get criticized myself. You know, what does this, what does this really say about my values or my methods or uh, my mm-hmm. understanding of the uh, this particular issue in the broader context? I mean, there's just so many ways to to uh, approach a subject. Right. So, there's there's a lot of ways to bring about change. It's just that, um, you know, the ones that are publicized seem to be the way or more important. And you, you sort of feel some kind of guilt if you're not involved. But you just have to remember, like, you know, there, there's a role for you elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to be protesting. It doesn't make you any less um, committed to change. Right. Um- are you, uh, can you, can you share what uh, community you're in in Wisconsin? 
I am a, it's called WASA, like W-A-U-S-A-U. Uh-huh, yes, uh-huh. Uh, have you been there? I think I've been in the area. I don't know if I've been in that specific community. So it's, I think it's like north and center, two hours from Madison, two hours from Green Bay. I, I think two hours from everywhere. So is it north of Madison? No, I think it's, well, kind of. I think it's like north, I'm not good at this, maybe northeast or northwest, north something. Yeah, okay. But not just like directly north. Our National Wellness Conference was up in Stevens Point, which is... Oh, it's 30 minutes from Stevens Point. Oh, okay. There you go. North, but it's directly north of Stevens Point. Oh, okay. So I didn't go beyond Stevens Point, so... Uh, yeah, uh, so it's, yeah, you have to pass Stevens Point to get there, but it's only in like 30 minutes on the very exact same highway. Yes, right. Straight up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it... It's a fairly small community, right? Yep. Very small, very white, mm -hmm. but nothing I'm not used to. So I'm not, not concerned about that at all. <laughs> yes, you came from, what was that school in Dakota where you Yep. Were? So University of Mary in North Dakota, where they had probably like five black people. So and, not too concerned about it. And then you came to an HBCU that was about 50-50. That was not truly an HBCU. Not, <laughs> well, yes and no. It wasn't, uh, historically. Well, I, guess, <laughs> I guess my understanding is like HBCUs should be pre predominantly minoritized groups or is that not the case? Well, uh, really some of them are almost uh, 100% uh, black schools. But uh, it turns out that Lincoln University was in a community that uh, whites felt uh, as though it was a good education um, and they could go and stay at home, you know, they could commute. So it, it had a, it actually became one of the most diverse campuses in the country uh, because of that. Right. And uh, so historically, it's black. But uh, present day, it's, uh, although, you know, if there were still yearbooks and you looked in the yearbook, you would think it was still a black school because most of the homecoming and football and all the different activities, they take more pictures and there's more black people present. So, you know, right. it's kind of a marketing issue that um, some it's not think fully is representative. a little, uh, could be called a little, uh, uh, well, just marketing, yeah. Right. Then you, then you went to Fayette, my hometown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to CMU, but CMU is actually very, very diverse in terms of international students. Ah. They have students from maybe over fifty countries there in that mm -hmm. small school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who do you recall the uh, a man from Iran? that was in the faculty there that uh, I think what, he... Was he in graduate faculty? I uh, can't recall. He We were fellow students at Mizzou back in the uh, late 70s. And uh, mm -hmm. he went on to um, Central Methodist to teach and administrate somewhat. So I, I, yeah. I'm 
trying to recall his name, but I can't. So. Yeah, but um, you know, when you're in grad school, you're 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 just kind of in that community. You don't know much about what's going on with undergrad. Ah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a different world. <laughs> different world. Uh, I I don't remember it. That that was a long time ago. Well, do you have uh, any advice or uh, suggestions for our listening audience about? Uh, how to navigate in today's world. We have a few minutes left in our conversation. And um. Um, Yes, I would say um, keep the conversations going as uncomfortable as they might be. Um, the other thing, too, I want to point out is that, um, you know, Black people are not here to teach you history. We're not here to teach you how to fight racist systems. We are tired. Um, so a lot of the things you need to know, you can research them yourself. Um, you can read about them. Um, and I find a lot of people will ask uh, how they, they just bombard you with questions, not necessarily to learn, but to argue against them. And that, that in and of itself is very tiring. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing too is um, as much as you want to protect your children, it's important to expose them to the reality of what's going on. Um, because if you don't do that, as they get older, um, they'll be in denial. So when my kids try to talk to them about their experiences, they're going to deny and invalidate their feelings. And that's not going to be good for either of us. Um, make sure you take time for yourself. Um, we have a lot going on, a lot. This year has been one for the books. and or mental health is suffering, even if you don't think it is, or if you don't realize that it is, but it is. Um, so for me, I'm making sure, taking time to get grounded and connect with nature is kind of how I reset, um, whether it's being out in nature alone or um, literally just being outside barefoot in the grass, um, breathing techniques, um, just taking care of yourself. Wear your mask. Um, you know, there's a lot of things to protest about. This is not one of them. Just wear your mask. If not for you, for your elder, elderly parents, for your elderly professors that have to be on campus teaching or other teachers, just wear your mask. You can protest other things. Um, this is not one of them. Um, but yeah, that's kind of that's kind of it. Excellent, excellent. I. I, I I'm going to question one of your suggestions. Okay. And and I, I I have heard it before. Your suggestion of don't ask people of color to teach you, do the research yourself. And I have to say that there again are sort of two schools of thought, at least, coming from the black community on that. Mm-hmm. The other... <laughs> uh, and it's, it's individualized as well. So some people are, are, like, they love doing that, but just don't assume everyone does. Ah, right? good point, so, good point. Yeah. So, like, for me, I don't mind. Ask away. Um, we can have conversations nonstop. Because I'm learning, you're learning, we're good. I don't mind it. 
but I I don't speak for everyone else, mm-hmm. and some people do mind it. Uh, right. Did, did you uh, get to know Tracy Wilson Kleekamp there at Mizzou? Um. Yes, we're actually and um, we're actually talking about collaborating on a project currently. Um. Yeah, I do know her. Oh, wonderful. Well, you know, she is a great teacher. Um, mm-hmm. in terms very knowledge, of, very knowledgeable. Right, and has books to recommend, and uh, you know, will she knows her her history, and and mm-hmm. certainly can correct mine and and other people's when we talk. Um, so I, I find that some of my best teachers are in the black community, and but, but at least you know. But at least you know you're not overwhelming them or overbearing them by asking so that's the difference you have a relationship with these people um and you know you asking them question is not added stress very well said thank you uh, that's a, a great uh clarification in a way for me to to uh it's sort of like asking for consent you know? right exactly yeah. And I mean, relationship building is a part of it too. Do you yeah. have a relationship with these people? Do you talk to them otherwise, or it's just like, um, let me run to them just as a resource, but that's it. What are you putting back into them? Mm-hmm. You just are you just taking, taking, taking? Yeah. Well, <laughs> as a, a radio <laughs> host, <laughs> as a radio host, I I'm I may be just taking, taking, but. Uh, Not necessarily, though, because if they're <laughs> someone that wants to get their voice out, you're also yeah. giving them that platform. So well, very yeah, and, and that's and that's my purpose is to get your voice out with your right. perspective and uh, make it available as a podcast that people can then listen to whenever they want to do their research. And, right, and yeah. I mean. As my old advisor, you know, you have been um, talking about social justice before it became a trend, right? Like you've been in this fight before people, before it, before it was cool to do it. Um, so <laughs> well, it's much easier to talk to you about it because you knew about it before I even knew about it, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's well, you- one thing. And you, you understand that the social justice movement has had waves uh, of involvement. So uh, I was on the, the tail end of the wave of the 60s. And then it just turns out that I was able to share that when I became a, a teacher in the 80s and 90s and on to look like <laughs> I might have been in the forefront. Uh, but, you know, it's all... It's all perspective and, and timing, but I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you. So you're uh, settling in to Wausau, Wisconsin, and uh, getting ready to meet some young people at uh, mm-hmm. this uh, juvenile detention. And um, I, I, I get the feeling that you're um, looking forward to this. I am. I am. I'm extremely excited. And whenever I tell anyone what I what I'll be doing for the next year, they're like, "Oh, it's gonna be so hard." And 
I'm like, um, yeah, but we've been living this, so I'm pretty sure I'll, I'll be okay. Good, good, good. Well, um, there's a little bit more time, but you know, I think we've had a good conversation and uh, I'll fill in the last uh, 10 minutes with either some music or uh, some Maybe reading. some reflection. Yeah, yeah, very good. So well, thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. I Nikita, always enjoy our conversations. It's uh, Nikita Coombs, C-O-O-M-B-S, or on mm -hmm. Facebook, it's Nikita Nicola. Yes. Okay. All the best. Uh, I'll be thinking about you and checking in now and then, see how it's going up there. I would like that. Thanks okay. for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Talk to you soon. All right, bye. Bye-bye. So in part of our time remaining, I, uh, I'd like to read a, a letter to the editor that uh, I've written and see how it, see how it goes with you. Uh, it's a controversial issue. And uh, with controversial issues, we have different points of view. Um, by the way, um, Growing up in Columbia, born in Fayette, um, I didn't know that there was racial issues going on. Um, in our house, uh, there was uh, black women, different ones through the years that would come and clean and teach me piano and, uh, you know, various things like this. I I didn't know the caste system. I didn't know what that meant then. I'd, I'd go down to my father's store and work next to a black man who was the porter. Uh, and we would wrap packages and go to the post office together and hose off the sidewalk in the front. And, and you know, we were just uh, sidekicks there. I, I didn't understand why he was the porter. And anyway, uh, Growing up, you, until somebody opens your eyes, you don't know. And actually, uh, it wasn't until I, my, my mother uh, started a store back in Fayette when I was in high school, and we moved back there for two years. And I worked at a drugstore on the square in Fayette called Street Drugs. And one summer day, uh, two uh, grade school age black kids come in and say they wanted ice cream cones. And I was more than happy to say, great, uh, have a seat, I'll get them for you. But they wouldn't go to the, sit down on the stools that were there, you know, those round stools that would spin when you, yeah, those. And I said, yeah, go sit down, I'll, I'll get them. And I was actually kind of pushy from the other side of the counter. Uh, I, I, I don't know why, I just, you know, wanted to have a seat. Finally, one of the kids uh, sort of touched one of the stools with the, the side of their body. And I made the cones and gave them, they put the money and ran out. And then my boss, Mr. Street, gave me the finger that says, come here. 
And I went over and he said, Dick, we don't let black people sit down in here. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. I, I had no place to put it. It was, it was such a, a shock. It was like, what do you mean? Well, that was uh, an eye-opening experience, and here I was, what, a, a sophomore in, in high school. Um, didn't even notice if there were two kinds of drinking fountains or two different entrances to theaters. You know, the, um, it just, it was not in my vision. So, uh, I, you know, I share that to say it's... We all have different experiences in growing up and come from different places. So this letter to the editor is entitled, at least the title I give it, I'm not sure what the newspaper editor will title it. I titled it Marker on Moreau, and this is a street in my neighborhood. Windmill or Trojan Horse. The city owns the Confederate marker on Moreau, which honors not Jeff Sidians, not God, not the Union, but Confederate General Sterling Price. I call for its removal daily. A friend said, stop tilting at windmills. His reference to the man of La Mancha was inspiring. The impossible dream is only impossible to non-believers. Don Quixote saw the world through different glasses or beliefs. I see a world where love and mutual respect are commonplace. If you believe the Moro Confederate marker is as innocent as a windmill, please read on. The United Daughters of the Confederacy, 1890s on, put up memorials, monuments, and markers predominantly in slave states for honoring the memory of its Confederate ancestors, protecting, preserving, and marking the places made historic by Confederate valor. That's a quote from their website. Blacks do not honor their memory, nor do I. Valor? General Sterling Price turned from Jeff City. Missouri joined the Union as a slave state in 1821. States' rights became the battle cry of the slave-owning states when their free labor was threatened. They did not want to lose their legal but immoral right to own other human beings to do their work. Southern culture meant white supremacy. Southern heritage equaled hatred of black people. And yes, there were Northern white supremacists too. In 1860, the United Daughters of the Confederacy's Confederate ancestors owned four 
million slaves with a value greater than all U.S. banks, businesses, and railroads combined. 987 human beings were the property of white men in Cole County. 4,523 black people were owned by white men in Callaway County. 5,034 in Boone. 5,886 in my birth county of Howard. And so on along the fertile Missouri River. Free labor. I watched Jeffrey Robinson on YouTube this week teach us the truth about the Confederacy. He said, they lost the war, but they won the peace. How? President Andrew Jackson pardoned nearly all Confederate soldiers. Jim Crow laws soon had many ex-slaves back working the same fields in chains. The Supreme Court ruled blacks were inferior to whites. Blacks were intimidated, lynched, jailed, kept from voting, and continually abused by Southern culture. Missourians lynched 60 African-Americans between 1877 and 1950. The United Daughters of the Confederacy Monument wants you to honor Confederate values, white supremacy, and valor, killing Americans. Remember the Trojan horse? When the defeated enemy gives you a gift, it is not innocent. Remove it. Submitted by Dick Dalton. So friends, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave it cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.